This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampeke Pagan. This year's edition of the Singapore Writers' Festival is well underway with yet another fantastic lineup of authors and thinkers from all across the world. Now, I've been attending the SWF for over six years now, and the one thing I've come to notice with each year is the proliferation of local talent. And so today on the show, I'm going to be speaking to two young Singaporean authors about the Singapore literature scene and about what it's like to be a young person writing in Singapore. First up, Daryl Yam. Hi, my name is Daryl Killen Yam. Um, I'm a writer. Uh, I write prose and poetry. I am born and based in Singapore. And I recently just released my first novel with Epigram Books. It's called Kappa Quartet. So Daryl, I'm, I'm here today to talk to you about the state of Singapore literature. And I was going to start off by asking you how you feel about where things are right now. Because when I look across the causeway, as I often do, and when I come down, I, I, I spend a lot of time visiting local bookshops, local independent Singaporean bookshops to see what is on the shelves by Singaporeans. Because obviously we get, we get all the American and English novels over here as well. And that number of books by Singaporeans, I feel, has grown exponentially in the last mm. five years. From across the yeah. board, from children's fiction to poetry to literary fiction. Yeah, I think over the past few years, we've definitely seen a huge surge, you know, almost like a renaissance about like in Singapore literature in which like we don't just see like a large quantity of titles being produced, but we also have the emergence of people who we definitely feel are talented, are gifted and are definitely worth reading. And I think that's very, very encouraging. On the other hand, though, um, I still feel like Singapore literature has a long way to go, especially within the context of ASEAN itself. In comparison to countries like Indonesia and Thailand and even like Vietnam, like Singapore has such a long way to go still, like convincing people that Singlet is still worth reading. What do you think is the reason behind this proliferation of Singlet? Hmm. Is it because of this overwhelming support by the government and the National Arts Council, or is it just because the younger generation of Singaporeans are trying to break away from the mold of being accountants, doctors, and lawyers? Hmm. Okay, here's the thing, right? I feel that okay, for a long time since like Singapore's independence, culture has more or less taken a backseat compared to more pressing national concerns such as economy and like the finance sector, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, what they call the and, practical concerns, I suppose. Yeah, very practical concerns. And it's only been in like the last 20 years or so when the government has decided, hey, you know what? I think it's time that we can actually focus on culture. And so therefore... The government has tried very hard to change the cultural mindset of Singapore by like introducing a lot of initiatives and like organizations to help, you know, both the culture across the board, not just in singlet, but in theater, in the visual arts sector, all these different like areas as well. And I think that and also increased education across the board has made people exposed to, you know, more literary works, not just like within the region, but also around the world. And I think a multitude of all those different factors, as well as a, like an increased sense of national identity and who we are, is leading to like a rise in Singapore lit. And, you know, I mean, I read quite a bit of Singapore poetry and Singapore fiction. And what mm. I found is that idea of what a Singapore 
what a Singaporean is and what singlet is. And this mm. grappling with national identity seems to be a very mm. prominent theme. It runs through yeah. it runs through everything. I mean, from Sunny Liu's brilliant graphic novel to a lot of the poetry I see being mm. written to a lot of the short story yeah. collections as well. Definitely. I think there are a lot of novels that are trying to understand, you know, what is our history? What is the cost of independence? And what is the cost of globalization? And where does Singapore situate itself in like a global context? Because of and course, think, for the longest time, you... Yeah. Uh, you, like us, over here in Malaysia, were told that there was only this one version of history. Yeah, exactly. And I think these are very important things to think about because I want to say it's not about being political, but it's about just being aware, you know, of like, what is the full Singaporean story? You know, and it's all part of, it's all part and parcel of like developing a thinking, reading, thoughtful, you know, kind of like literary and like, you know, just getting people to like ask themselves these important questions. And it's very important, I think. Well, one of the things I'm most excited about, because the Malaysian literary scene has grown in a very similar fashion over the last mm. decade. We've got so many more young writers writing in both English and Malay. And mm. it's, it's, it's nice to see. But the thing I'm most excited about is that we get these versions. Because I think a lot of the time in a in any country in the world, their literature mm. and their fiction especially goes a long way towards putting forward these versions of history and identity. Yeah. And because it's taken a backseat in both of our countries, we haven't had that. Yeah, I think that's why Tony Lewis of Charlie Chan came as such a revelation. Oh, it was, even wasn't Coast, Even Amanda Lee Coe's Ministry of Moral Panic that dealt with some specific sections of our history and our, even our own like national myth, I think those yeah, were very necessary and essential. So Daryl, tell me, I'm, I read English and I read Malay, but I'm not very well aware of the other vernacular languages and what the literary mm. scene is like in Singapore. So talk to me about, I guess, the Chinese and the Indian literary scene. Do you know anything about it? I mean, is it as prolific? Because I see a lot of English stuff. Oh, I'm, unfortunately, the most I know, right, about the Chinese lit scene is that um, there is a huge divide between a lot of the old practitioners mm-hmm. of Chinese lit. Like, they're like in, like in the 50s and the 60s now. There's a huge gulf between them and like a lot of writers in their twenties, and I'm not so sure about the Malay and Tamil scenes as well. But what I do know of the Chinese scene is that there is this huge gulf, and there are people in their twenties who are trying to bridge that gap. And if they find that gap unbridgeable, they're trying to also like just make them pass <laughs> as well. Yeah, I think part of that has to do with the fact that there was a big divide. I mean, in time that, um, I guess people stopped writing for a long, long time. Actually, my biggest concern is how little I know about the other languages. You know, like, it doesn't make sense because we're such a small country and we're constantly in contact with one another. I know, but... So why do we know so little about the other languages? I I find you shouldn't beat yourself up (laughs) about that because it'll just depress you because you'll realize how much there is that you can't actually read or understand. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One last thing before I let you go, Daryl, though, and and I think this is a very necessary part of our conversation. We've spoken about writers and poets and the producers of this content, but what about the consumers of this content? I always see Kinokuniya in Taka full of people. Are they actually reading the books they buy or are they just shopping? I don't know. Because the thing about literature is it's a two-step process, isn't it? First, you have to buy the book. Then you have to read the book. Correct. Right? For instance, myself. I buy a lot of books, but reading takes a lot longer than the act of buying. <laughs> and so all I can say is, I do hope that people are buying books. And I do think people are buying more books. But I still think 
there's so much work to do, you know, because the general population still doesn't read. And the general population doesn't even know, like, they barely know anything about local literature, and that's so saddening. And so I feel like, yeah, we definitely, as a whole, as the producers and the creators of these content, have a lot more work to do with regards to just converting the masses. Yeah. Daryl, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. No problem. It was a pleasure. That was Daryl Yam. His brand new book, Kappa Quartet, is published by Epigram Books and is now available at all good bookstores. After this, a short musical interlude more about the state of Singapore literature with poet Amanda Chong. Hi, my name is Amanda and I'm a lawyer and poet from Singapore. Um, I write confessional poetry uh, and my first collection is Professions, which is being launched at the Singapore Writers' Festival. I want to talk to you today about the state of Singapore literature, but before we get into that, I've got a question to ask you. Every time I walk into a Singaporean bookshop, the vast majority of the published works I see are poetry. Why or why are there so many Singapore poets? Well, I really think that because um, in Singapore... Uh, being a full-time writer is not really uh, very viable. And so you often have a lot of like hyphenates, like multi-hyphenates. Like as I just described myself, I'm a lawyer poet and we have teacher poet, civil servant poet. <laughs> and I, I just think that poetry is something that really lends itself to having a full-time job. I mean, it's easier to compose, you know, it's more compact. And it's something that you can do on your morning commute or waiting for like chicken rice at your favorite hawker store during lunch breaks. And that is exactly how I write my poetry. So I think, you know, the reason behind that is quintessentially Singaporean in that it's pragmatic. Of course, I see that. But you, of course, know as well as I do that shorter doesn't necessarily mean easier, right? Yes, I I think that's true too. I also think that there's a lot of affinity that Singaporeans have with poetry because you know, there's a lot in Singapore and in Asian cultures in general, we are very much into double meanings where what you see is not necessarily what you get. And I think given uh, the kind of political climate that we have in Singapore, the kind of social climate even, that commenting on on society through the medium of poetry is a lot more acceptable or it's easier to do rather than having it all written out in prose. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that is also part of the beauty of the Malay Panton. So much is said in those four stanzas. So much subversiveness is contained within those four stanzas. Yes, exactly. And I think when in Singapore poetry, you see the same kind of phenomenon happening. Uh, There was this collection of um, poems called uh, A Luxury We Cannot Afford, uh, which came out, I think, in 2014. And Really, it's a, a lot of poetry about one of our greatest leaders, rather the great leader you associate with Singapore. Of course, and, you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to write or commentate on his legacy so transparently. Whereas, you know, you can negotiate that kind of ambivalent relationship that we have with his legacy much more easily through the medium of poetry. So, Amanda, what is it like being a writer in Singapore? I think. From the Malaysian side, we often look upon Singapore writers with a certain amount of envy because of the active role that the government takes and the National Arts Council takes. And I guess there are so many opportunities for funding and grants and publishing. What is it actually like on the ground being a Singaporean writer? Do you face the same struggles that the rest of us do? 
Well, I have to say that I have been a beneficiary of the National Arts Council funding, and I do think that there is a role that the state can play in cultivating the arts. So I myself was uh, mentored under the Singapore Literature Prize winning poet Cyril Wong under a mentorship program, Mentor Access Program, which is organized by the National Arts Council. And that gave me great access to a whole bunch of um, senior writers who commentated on my work and were paid to do so by the National Arts Council. But I think increasingly we see that there is a role for groups of writers to exist outside of, you know, institutional structures. And I think it's very important that there is that climate where writers can exist without, you know, without wholly being supported by the government because the role of artists is really to commentate and provide a counter-narrative to, to what's going on in society. And you can't do that when, you know, if you are entirely beholden to the government. So what's it like on the ground then? As a, as a writer, I mean, one of the most important things that I find lacking within maybe even the Southeast Asian sphere is that sense of connection between our local writers. The support structures aren't necessarily in place. I mean, you talked about that mentoring program, which seems absolutely crucial, especially if you're a young poet. Yeah. But what is it like among writers themselves in Singapore? I mean, do you guys get together and talk and work things out? Is there is there a support structure among writers in Singapore? Yes, and I think I was actually very, very surprised because I, I lived in the UK and the US for a while before returning to Singapore, that when I came back, um, there was this vibrant literary community uh, that was very connected and really generous. So Cyril Wong, for example, although we first met under the auspices of um, a government mentorship program, he was willing to continue mentoring me, even apart from that, after that mentorship program ended. And Organically, we have been gathering up as writers to meet up and have our own workshop groups. So it's kind of an egalitarian model of critique where, you know, different young writers we meet every month. Um, my writing group is called the Image Symbol Department, or ISD for short, which is also does happen to be a, a Singapore government department. And, and it's, again, you know, in the spirit of subverting, I suppose we're just it was just like a playful kind of subversive name that we chose for ourselves. I like it. <laughs> and and so we've gathered and we critique um, each other's poetry. And there is this Singapore Poetry Writing Month, which happens in April every year. And you have like 2,500 Singaporeans uh, writing in a Facebook group based on prompts given by by poets and other writers. And it's it's just um, a community that's growing and it's surprising and it's very exciting because you you see really Singaporeans from all different walks of life, different age groups, different races, and even like multilingual poetry. So there is that vibrant kind of countercultural vibe that is that's really coming from the poetry community. That's great. I, I mean, I like hearing that because, you know, I've been attending the Singapore Writers Festival now for, for years. I've lost count how many years I've been now. And what I find most heartening is every year when I look at the program and I look at the speaker lineup, I see one more and more local writers, more and more Singaporean writers and Malaysian writers on the lineup, which is always good. And yeah. the other thing which I find really heartening is I see more and more young writers. Yeah. And I was just going to say, for me both in Malaysia and Singapore, coming from a culture that doesn't actively encourage, actually even actively discourages these pursuits from time to time, that's incredibly heartening to see. Yeah, I think 
you know, in a country like Singapore where it is to a certain extent quite regimentalized, that there are certain expectations and there's a certain trajectory for you know, a young person to grow up in society. You know, you get your professional job, you get married, you get your HDB flat. Correct. Uh, and there is a greater sense of people rebelling from that sort of prescribed narrative and you see it bubbling and coming out of the edges in the vibrant art scene that we're starting to have and the different pursuits that people are choosing for themselves. I mean, I, I myself am not a full-time writer, but I have friends who are my age and they have the capacity and opportunities to be full-time writers in Singapore. And I think that's a really fantastic thing because just a generation ago, I think it would be quite unthinkable to do that. So I take it you're hopeful, given how you've seen the scene evolve over the last five years, over the last 10 years. Yes, I I definitely do think I am hopeful. But one crucial piece that's missing is I really do think that more needs to be done to develop a Singaporean leadership for our work. Of course, we do have people, increasing numbers of Singaporeans reading work. But if you talk about um, literature in school, you know, the pragmatic Singaporean mindset is still winning over and it's not a very popular topic to take in schools because you it doesn't lend itself to scoring well in an exam. But I think that is crucial to having Singaporean literature exported onto the world stage. You need a home base of uh, readers um, who advocate for Singapore literature and who enjoy it and appreciate it from our own cultural context. And we need that before um, any our literature can be exported. That was poet Amanda Chong. Her brand new collection, Professions, are 39 poems that investigate the minute oddities and curiosities of human relationships through the lens of a poet's craft. Also, the Singapore Writers' Festival 2016 is still on until Sunday the 13th of November. You can find details of the programme at singaporewritersfestival.com. You've been listening to Bookmark on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.